agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. How are you today? I am doing, I guess I'm doing okay. Uh, This is the third take of the opening, but I finally got it. So (laughs) let's hope that's not a portent of things to come. I don't think it is. How are you? No, I'm good. I've been uh, slowly sipping my coffee warming up so hopefully i don't know it's it's been it's been a long this is now week seven for us here on lockdown you're probably at about the same so i don't know things tend to get a little fuzzy when you've been home with your family yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) i'm not at the point yet where i am uh contemplating injecting disinfectant or, you know, snaking an ultraviolet <laughs> light into my lungs. Uh, so uh, I guess that's that's good. But, uh, you know, anyway, uh, so uh, let's why don't we just plunge right in. So, Kristen, I'll just turn things over to you. Yeah. So um, the so we obviously we have a lot of stories about COVID-19 this week, but some interesting angles. So the first story that uh, we're going to talk about is the COVID-19 aid package um, that passed. So this week, Congress passed a $484 billion COVID-19 aid package, uh, which President Trump signed into law on Friday. This is, if you're keeping count, the fourth relief bill that was passed by Congress and all. Um, And this package is designed to help replenish the small business loan program, which um, was previously enacted and was quickly overwhelmed. This package actually takes things a step further. It includes um, provisions to help hospitals and um, also to fund a COVID-19 testing and research program. And for those of you keeping a tally on the spending like I am, according to the Congressional Budget Office, um, the grand total is now $2.4 trillion paid out to small businesses, hospitals, testing efforts, etc. And to break this latest bill down... Uh, $300 billion is going to the overburdened paycheck protection program that I mentioned a minute ago. $60 billion goes to other various small business administration disaster assistance loans and grants. $75 billion is included in grants to hospitals. And an additional $25 billion is headed for efforts to improve coronavirus testing. So there's there has been a lot of speculation about whether there will be another bill, whether this is the end. A lot of people say no. A lot of people say yes. Um, what are your thoughts on it? How do you how do you feel about this? Are you also keeping track of the money on a ticker like I am? Or I, I am keeping <laughs> you have track. different feelings. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I am keeping track. And I think uh, while I, I was pleased that this was passed and I think it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's a good thing, certainly. But I think that this is nowhere near the end, and it shouldn't be anywhere near the end. I mean, you know, two point four trillion. Uh, some some estimates say you know maybe it's at this point almost nearly three trillion with various other things. But that to me is given the size of what we're dealing with. That's peanuts, uh, not peanuts, but it's certainly not nearly as far as we need to go. And my guess, I guess my biggest disappointment with this legislation is I feel like it wasn't close to enough, uh, especially for the Paycheck Protection Program. I would have liked to have seen, oh, I don't know, maybe an additional $651 billion. That would take the, 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 the Paycheck Protection Program all the way up to a trillion. And I think that mm-hmm. would be about right. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, that I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, when we look at small businesses, they, they account for just under half of U.S. employment and over just over 40% of U.S. payrolls. And so that's a huge segment of the economy. And when we're looking at how to fund this, how to get people through this, I think this kind of thing, really making sure that this program doesn't run out of money again, is incredibly important because we don't want to have these delays for another round of funding. There are already hundreds of thousands of businesses still waiting to hear because it it ran out of money the first time around. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a big problem. And if we do, if Congress does fund this to a level where it's running out of money, isn't going to be a problem again, this is going to have huge downstream benefits because it means more money for businesses to keep employees on the payroll. That means fewer unemployment claims in the future, less loss of tax revenue. And states right now are facing enormous shortfalls. And I would think that funding something like this 
for Republicans especially would be far preferable to a ton of direct aid to states and municipalities, which they seem very much opposed to. Certainly Mitch McConnell does. So my general view is that this does not go anywhere close to far enough, but it's a good idea. It just needs to be done in a bigger way. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, ha- I obviously have my <clears throat> reservations as somebody who tends to lean more fiscally conservative. I do have my, my reservations about the, you know, that ticker going up and up and up and up in the debt and, uh, the impacts of that national debt. You know, I understand Mitch McConnell's concern. I get it. Um, however, um, that being said, I looked at the original uh, small business loan program that was rolled out. And when it was rolled out, I had some initial criticisms, but I'm not an economist. Although I study the economy, I'm definitely not an economist. So I listen to those who are smarter than me when it comes to things economic. And one of the concerns right out of the box was that this that the loan program would be affecting, well, first of all, that it was too high risk, low reward for banks. And so banks, you know, would probably be hesitant to jump into this full full force, which I think the federal government had hoped for, but also that it would be um, disproportionate, that it would disproportionately affect smaller businesses, your mom and pop shops, um, as opposed to larger firms. And that's exactly what we saw happen. So if I have one big criticism for that original uh, loan loan program that was rolled out. What was it now? Three weeks ago? Four weeks ago? Three weeks ago? Three, yeah. I, yeah. I've lost track of time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, you know, when, when that loan program rolled out, um, that was one of the things I was most concerned about because, you know, this, <clears throat> I think most of us know someone or maybe we are someone who was directly affected by this. I know I had several family members, including my husband, apply for that loan um, and, and essentially get rejected because there just wasn't enough money. And, you know, you're hearing stories on the news about these huge companies, um, you know, these publicly traded companies that were, you know, receiving these these huge paychecks. And the whole thing just seemed... Um, I, it it just seems bloated and sort of destined to not do well. And so that was one of my big concerns. And what I was hoping for with this new package is that there would be some tighter regulation uh, on that and that we would, I don't want to say, I don't like saying regulation, that there would be some, t- maybe some tighter uh, ramifications as to who would get those small business loans. And I agree with you that you know, whether we like it or not, small businesses, those mom and pop shops and the bigger firms, too, are really the lifeblood of the economy. Without those up and running, um, you know, we, we essentially don't have an economy. And, and, and right now, you know, we have, um, you know, a world where the economy has stopped and a country where the economy has stopped. We have, um, you know, uh, all sorts of things going on that are byproducts of a, of a weak economy and high unemployment. You have a rise in suicides. You have a rise in cases of depression. You have a rise in domestic violence. All of these things are, are attributable in many ways to a, you know, a floundering economy. And to get this up and moving again is important. And I agree with you that McConnell and some of the folks on the right, although I am fiscally conservative and I get their concern, probably need to look at this and say this is far more palatable than with what you were talking about with additional aid to states, which and I understand their concerns maybe a little more with that. Um, but, you know, I, I just I think looking at the big picture, thinking of, you know, as somebody whose family is involved in a couple of different small businesses and who's being directly affected by this, I agree with you. I think this was important. I'm glad that that uh, President Trump signed it. And I'm glad that there is at least a little bit of bipartisan support for this. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think when we talk about small businesses, it's a it's a funny word because we we that I think tend to think in terms of, like you said, mom and pop shops. But of course, yeah. <laughs> the SBA, uh, Small Business Administration's definition is 500 or fewer. And for most yeah. of us, if you have 500 employees, you're not a small business. You're, you know, <laughs> but, but that's the definition. And so in yeah. an ideal world, I would have liked to have seen a lot more of this targeted toward the smallest businesses. I mean, those with under 100 employees, and they actually make up around a third of all U.S. employment because with a lot of these programs, the problem is, is the businesses that are most endangered are the ones that don't have the expertise to know how to work the system and apply for this stuff in the way and have the connections. And that that's always going to be a problem. And so, unfortunately, the only solution, I think, to that when you have to, when you're trying to inject as much money into the economy to keep people afloat is to not have very strict restrictions and then catch firms on the back end 
who have abused it. Like we've seen, you know, like with, like with Harvard or say like with Ruth Chris or those, you know, the, mm-hmm. the franchises and th- you make yep. adjustments as you go along. And that's, that's not ideal. But when you have a situation where you have to act very quickly, things are going to fall through the cracks and clever firms with, you know, with, with attorneys and folks making six figures, mid high six figure salaries, they get paid to exploit those loopholes and that's going to happen. And so that that's an unfortunate side effect of that. But, but like I said, generally speaking, I think this is a good thing. And there are some limits built into this. There were more limits that were put on or restrictions put on in this second mm-hmm. round. And also it's important to point out this isn't, this is in a sense, free money, but it's free money with a limit because firms can only get up to two and a half times the average monthly payroll costs from the previous calendar year. And it's capped mm-hmm. at $10 million. And also Payroll costs can only apply to annual salaries up to $100,000. So there are these things built into this. It's not perfect, but uh, it is, you know, it, it's a step forward and it's certainly, uh, certainly a good thing. Definitely. So I guess I have a, a question for you sort of related to this. So um, there was a committee that was approved along with this, a, a committee, sort of a um, an offshoot or a subcommittee of the oversight, um, House Oversight Committee um, that Nancy Pelosi says is going to sort of oversee things, regulate things, investigate things, make sure that things are going according to plan. How do you feel about this? I think we're going to need a lot of this and there's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of investigations when this is over, and there's going to be a lot of fraud and waste and mismanagement that's uncovered. And some of that's going to be just legitimate. We're trying to move as quickly as possible and people make honest mistakes. And part of it's just going to be uh, folks trying to gain game the system. And I hope that we come down on those people like a ton of bricks. So I am I am all for unlike, I think, unfortunately, sometimes uh, the administration, I am all for independent inspectors general. I am all for oversight committees and transparency and all sorts of checks and balances on these, because when we're talking about this sort of money, it just invites people to come in and misuse it. And we need to we need to make sure that we crack down hard on those people. So I I have to say of of all the things that sort of spilled forth after because this this has all happened like within the last you know forty eight to twenty four hours that you know we've been getting news at this breakneck speed and one of the things I I immediately when um I saw Pelosi on TV and I don't remember what channel it was but she was you know defending this decision to create a committee generally when I hear committee I I think up until the last couple of years I haven't given it much thought but in the last couple of years I. I'm skeptical of committees, especially when Nancy Pelosi is is the one sort of pulling the strings for these committees. And I was interested. Um, so I, ch- I checked it out and I saw that um, the chairman of this committee would be Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, who's a, a Democratic uh, d- a Democrat out of South Carolina, I believe. And he's a big Biden supporter. And a lot of people say that he was sort of the, the linchpin, one of the key players in the Biden nomination. He's a big Biden supporter. Obviously, South Carolina was a big turning point um, for him, you know, ascending to the to the to be the presumptive nominee. And I have some questions about that. And I do and I do as a Republican, I do look at this and I say something doesn't quite smell right. Now, I'm willing to you know, this is something that passed along with with the package. Um, But I have my concerns about it and I've got my eye on it. And I know a lot of other Republicans um, also have their eye on it. But I would think that uh, this is, you know, obviously things are going to be politicized no matter what. We get frustrated with it. We say, you know, this is a major situation. It affects both parties equally. You know, it affects Republicans and Democrats and independents and everybody in between. Everybody's getting sick. There's, there's, you know, there are a lot of problems. A lot of people's businesses are failing and it's not along party lines. But in a time like this, I have to wonder why Clyburn was chosen and whether this is going now I'm, I'm not willing to say yes it will turn because I know a lot of Republican pundits that say yes this will turn into sort of a um, uh, an arm of the of the Democratic Party, and this will turn into another quote unquote witch hunt. I'm not willing to go there yet, but I do have my eye on it, um, and I think I think it's kind of an interesting turn of events. So yeah, I'm I'm watching that pretty closely. I don't know how I feel about this committee, but the package itself I think has some better uh, you know some some better mechanisms in place for regulating where that money goes, how it's allotted. I think it's probably a better aid package, and I agree with you that. 
um, you know, I, I think in times like this, when we're trying to pass things quick, quickly, we have these exigent circumstances, we have people, you know, filing at breakneck speed for unemployment. I think it's important to get these things done quickly. And I think there will be mistakes made. And certainly it's not going to be an exception with this. So let me ask you, Kristen, when yeah. you're, you're, you're not, uh, you are in favor of oversight and making sure that the, this money is spent you know, correctly, obviously. I mean, that that's, you know, it's the obvious question. But so in terms of, I mean, obviously, congressional oversight, that's, you know, that's a responsibility of Congress to engage in oversight of you know, legislation and so forth. And we would, Congress would, in fact, be derelict in its duty if it didn't engage in oversight, especially of something this massive. And so I know you agree with that. And so I guess what I'm yeah. wondering is, so... When you say something doesn't smell right, the Congress happens or the House happens to be controlled by Democrats right now. So, of course, yeah. any committee that would be designated as an oversight committee would be chaired by a Democrat. And kind of by definition, these would be people who are not supporters of President Trump. So I guess I'm wondering what doesn't smell right here to you. I mean, isn't it just sort of to me, it's just like, well, we, we, we take a top, a top prominent Democrat to, to run this thing, and uh, we go in with a presumption that it's going to be run fairly. And if we find out that it isn't, that's a different story. But what doesn't exactly smell right to you here? I guess that's where I'm sort of trying to understand. Well, I, I think what sort of raised an eyebrow for me just in, just instinctively when I read it was the name Clyburn. Um, I, you know... It's funny because I I kind of expected something like that to happen and I and I kind of didn't. I understand the need for oversight, although I think there are many mechanisms in place in Congress. I mean, uh, you know, the House has an oversight committee um, that that you know works to. It's not specifically designed for situations like this. It's more general, um, but I think there are mechanisms in place. They're also built into the package itself. There there are more mechanisms in place. This is just overall structurally a better package. I think most people on either side would agree. But I saw the name Clyburn. And again, I, I wanted to put that out there as I'm not immediately suspicious, but it raised an eyebrow because I feel like Clyburn's name was mentioned a lot during the South Carolina primary. And there were, you know, many, many examples of Clyburn coming through for Biden. He was one of the first supporters of Biden. And he was really just in terms of, of um, you know, I guess just looking at the bigger picture, he was he was, if not the most influential, one of the most influential people um, that determined sort of the course of this race for Joe Biden. And with Joe Biden as the presumptive nominee, you know, I have to I look at this and I say, I don't know whether picking Clyburn to chair this committee was a gambit? Was it was it sort of a, a political maneuver? Was it smart politics on behalf of Democrats? Um, was it just he's a prominent Democrat, um, you know, in, in, a, uh, in South Carolina is, you know, a state that a lot of people are watching during this election? You know, is it just is it just that he has a special interest in this? I don't know. But what, all I'm all I'm prepared to say right now is that it raised an eyebrow for me. I thought that was an interesting choice for chairman. And that's not to say that I think there are Republicans that would raise an eyebrow no matter what. I think, you know, if had had any Democrat been chosen to chair this committee, I think a lot of Republicans would have, you know, raised the alarm and said, hey, it's a Democrat. Well, of course it is, because that the House is, like you said, controlled by Democrats. I just wonder why Clyburn. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, I'm watching it. I'm watching it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I think, it, I don't know if, if you are, I'm, I'm ready to, to move on to what, what do we have next, actually? <laughs> so this is um, the uh, the Trump immigration suspension oh, okay. that we have next. So sort of related to all of this, this past Wednesday, Trump signed a proclamation suspending the admission of new permanent residents into the United States. Um, and this is going to be for 60 days. And of course, in 50 days, it's going to be revisited and either extended or not. Um, this is in an effort to protect American workers. The proclamation says, as we are dealing with, and this is straight from that document, a potentially protracted economic recovery with persistently high unemployment if labor supply outpaces labor demand. So I thought I would break this down a little more because I feel like there's been a lot of misinformation going each way. Um, you know, the, the way that 
that Trump sort of put it out there was, you know, blown out of proportion. And then I've, you know, I've seen a lot of news stories that that do the opposite. So a significant portion of immigration flow into the country has already halted due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this order prevents non-citizens living outside the country from obtaining a green card if they do not have valid uh, a valid immigrant visa or other travel document that grants entry into the United States. And then in addition to that, non-citizens who are healthcare professionals, so nurses, doctors, um, and other healthcare professionals are exempt as long as they are entering the U.S. to perform medical research um, or research intended to combat the spread of COVID-19. Um, and also their children and spouses are exempt. And also exempt are the children and spouses of American citizens, members of the U.S. Armed Forces and their family, spouses, children, um, Iraqi or Afghan citizens employed by U.S. forces here or abroad, um, and also children who are being adopted from abroad by U.S. citizens and any non-citizens who can invest $1.8 million into an American business. So there are some um, some exceptions here. But uh, yeah, so th- this is something that that came down the pike um, before this before this aid package rolled out. And of course, um, I think it, I think this raised a lot of Democrats eyebrows and I imagine it raised yours, Mike. <laughs> uh, not so much. Uh, and that's yeah. because uh, and that's because I see this. I mean, you, you mentioned you went off the long list of exemptions. And at some point you say, well, geez, who actually is covered by this? And even <laughs> even some pro-immigration groups have said, you know, this, this is going to have a huge effect on the ground, really. And so I see this much more as uh, political than than substantive, although, you know, pro-immigration groups and I am worried about it being extended and expanded over time, uh, and you know that that's another story. We'll see what happens in in fifty days. You know, there's not much question about the president's legal authority to do this. So, I think I actually read the uh, executive order, and you know, one one thing. This is sort of a pet peeve of mine is that when people talk about and report on these things, they don't bother to actually read the document itself, but they just go ahead and sort of talk about whatever they heard, whoever was on yep. Fox News or or, or MSNBC talking about and you know executive orders especially folks i gotta say they tend to be pretty short this one i cut and pasted in the word it was uh less than four single space pages quick read very straightforward and if you just read the executive order it it actually is a reasonable a reasonable document i think there are a lot of reasonable exemptions as well uh you know uh it talked a lot about how americans at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum are likely to face the most competition for jobs from new immigrant labor. And, you know, under the circumstances, this seems to me to be an entirely reasonable policy response. And a lot of people are going to say, oh, my God, what are you saying? But I think it's important to not automatically associate Trump with bad. Uh, now, there's there's plenty of bad with Donald Trump. He says a lot of bad and, and stupid and ridiculous things, you know, uh, let's inject disinfectant and what have you. These, But, oh. but well, I mean, no, you know, you can. I mean, you know, when the president of the United States gets on a national, you know, a national stage and says, I don't know, maybe we can inject disinfectant into ourselves. Well, you know, that's 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 not just problematic. That's that's horrifically bad. But. In this particular instance, this was, I think, a reasoned, well thought out executive order. Now, of course, it plays to his base. And of course, it kind of is aligned with his general policy on immigration. Uh, But. In and of itself, I think if, you know, if somebody like, for instance, uh, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden would have been president and promulgated this executive order, I think people would have said, oh, that seems that seems pretty reasonable. And that's what I think it is. Pretty reasonable. Well, that's that's interesting. I um I have a, a friend who's um, a Democrat and uh, an immigrant herself, and she she actually said the same thing. She said in a situation like this, I can't she's um, I was talking to her yesterday and she said, I, I am trying to find something bad here, which I think describes a lot of us on either side. When we look at politics now, you know, we take a step back and we say, I'm trying to find something bad here. And she said, I don't think it is bad. And, and um, you know, I I also read the proclamation. I went to the you know, the White House.gov. I read the proclamation. Um, you know, like you said, it's, it seems pretty simple, straightforward. I think, you know, the, the rationale is, is pretty tight. Um, 
So he's, you know, he's invoking Section um, 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, which is something that's been invoked many times before. I know there, um, I I try to, and I've said on the show before, I try to bounce around from cable news channel to cable news channel. And I read lots of different publications and I saw a lot of immigration activists saying, well, this this is unprecedented. This isn't something that's ever been done. And that's not true. It's been, it was done, it was invoked six times in the, uh, during the Obama administration over the course of eight years. It's been invoked many times before that. So, you know, I, I understand he's he definitely does have the authority to do this. Um, and, you know, and in 50 days, we'll find out whether or not it's going to be renewed. It might be, I think, um, you know, if the, if the situation warrants. Um, but, you know, I, I think that this definitely falls under that um you know, that that section of the Immigration and Nationality Act, um, you know, where this is being done in the name of protectionism, protecting the country, not necessarily from um, a, a visible threat, but from uh, an invisible threat. Yeah, and also, you know, protect to protect the business interests of people in the United States. I also thought it was a pretty tight um you know, a, a pretty tight, tightly written document. And I would also encourage people to read it, especially if you're skeptical or if you're just jumping on board because you're a big President Trump fan and, you know, you, you wear the MAGA hat and, and um, you know, you're, you're all about curbing immigration. I think it's important to read this because I think there are some really important exemptions made here. Um, and yeah, I, I, I guess that was what was bothering me yesterday as I was flipping from news, news channel to news channel. And on Thursday, too, I guess it was discussed more vigorously on Thursday. But, um, you know, people sort of jumping to conclusions and taking a side when really this seems pretty straightforward. And um, yeah, don't believe everything you hear, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I guess next we'll talk about uh, the state's reopening and, and an exit strategy for this. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, as we move into, I guess it's it's week seven for me. Um, <laughs> I think it depends on where you live. Week five, week six, week seven, week eight. Um, it's week seven of lockdown, and uh, with growing sentiment to get the economy rest- uh, restarted as soon as possible to stop financial bleeding and sort of allow people to resume their daily routines, many states have been uh, have begun thinking of their lockdown exit strategies. Uh, Many statewide stay at home orders actually end next week um, on Friday and emerging from this will be anything but orderly and uniform. Of course, Uh, most states will likely follow federal guidelines for reopening, which were issued Earlier this month, several states have announced plans to open non-essential businesses and stages, each varying at state and local levels. Um, and just to give you an idea of, of what's going on across the country, some governors have formed task forces comprised of public health officials and business leaders to help them create a strategy for reopening. Uh, many are likely to begin in May, uh, to, to begin this process in May. And of course, Georgia leads the pack <laughs> in terms of the timeline. Um, and they, the Georgia Governor Kemp, Brian Kemp made headlines this week for being the first to reopen. Uh, Governor Kemp began the process reopening gyms, fitness centers, hair salons, barbershops, and massage therapy centers uh, yesterday on Friday. And restaurants, social clubs, and movie theaters will be allowed to open on Monday in the state of Georgia. And this move prompted quite a bit of criticism from people on both sides of the aisle, including fellow Republican President Trump, which Governor Kemp kind of brushed off, um, who said that President Trump said that Governor Kemp should have taken a slower path. So I guess, you know, there are a lot of obviously we we don't have a crystal ball and, you know, Mike, and we can't see what's going to happen in the future. But I guess um, what are your thoughts about this, about what uh, Governor Kemp is doing, um, you know, what's going on across the country? Should states adhere to those federal guidelines? Should we tighten them? What are your thoughts? Well, this is something I don't say very often, but President Trump is absolutely right. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, if you just take a look at the federal reopening guidelines, which I think most most folks agree are, are, are pretty reasonable. Again, you need to uh, disassociate President Trump's rhetoric and deliberate Michigan and all that stuff with the actual stuff that's released. And if you read those guidelines, and I don't know all listeners have, they're they're pretty reasonable, and and most public health folks say, yeah, that that's a good that's a good plan for recommendations for reopening. And then take a look at Georgia. So you know, two of the guidelines are uh, ensuring that you have a decrease for fourteen mm-hmm. days, and mm-hmm. also that you have enough capability to do uh, rigorous, thorough uh, testing and tracing. So if we take a look at Georgia, Georgia doesn't even come close 
demeaning yeah. those things. You look at new reported cases by day in Georgia, there's no, there's nothing even remotely resembling a 14-day decline. And you take a look at testing, they're not ready on testing anywhere close. Um, one, of the res one of the sources I go to, I'm sure a lot of folks do, is from the uh, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, and they have uh, recommend or they, they trace, you know, when the, the peak is expected to be in terms of deaths and hospital utilizations for states. And also, they've, in, they've put in a new thing saying, well, what, when would be the initial date based on all these projections and data to have a containment strategy that is, you know, a, a reasonable sort of thing that kind of goes along with these guidelines? And for, for Georgia, their prediction is, oh, June 22nd uh, is when they yeah. think. And so what clearly to me, Governor Kemp is being incredibly irresponsible and clearly to me. This is going to cost some lives. And he has made the decision, as I should say, that every governor is going to have to make the decision of when do we open up and how do we balance the economic loss and, and the very real health and other you know, problems that come from an incredibly depressed economy against the lives that we know will be lost and the more infections and so forth when we relieve, when we, you know, uh, when we go back to something approaching business as usual. And Governor Kent made this made this calculation and I think he erred. I think he erred in a big way and everyone just about including President Trump seems to agree and that's going to cost lives and I think, you know, hey, he's going to have to he's going to have to live with that and it's a bad decision. That's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, I I was going to say just uh, you know, surfing through different news channels, I was, you know, watching the reactions of fellow Republicans. I uh, Lindsey Graham rolled his eyes <laughs> when when this was brought up. You've got President Trump criticizing, you've got other governors from neighboring states criticizing this decision on behalf of or or that was made by Governor Kemp. You know, I think um I also I agree with you. I think this is this is pretty this was done pretty hastily. Um, I'm not sure where he came to the conclusion. I mean, you're talking about this. This was something that, you know, struck me. Gyms, fitness centers, hair salons, barbershops, massage therapy centers. These these are all businesses that involve a lot of person to person contact, yeah. like physical contact. Um, unlike, you know, you know, this, these reopened or these were allowed to reopen on, on Friday. And of course, on Monday, you've got restaurants, social clubs, movie theaters. You know, I, I have to, I have to look at this and scratch my head and say, you know, I haven't seen a really tight, logical reasoning for why he chose to allow, for example, fitness centers, um, hair salons, massage therapy tattoo, centers. To I think, yeah. Yeah, it it just yeah, it just it, it it like to me it just boggles my mind and I and I too agree with with President Trump. I I think um you know, I think he should have taken a slower path, uh which you know was the language he used. You have other Republicans criticizing saying if you mess this up, this is this is going to be bad for you. This is going to be bad for your state. Um you know, I think other and and you know, that's not to say that that I don't agree with the fact that we have to balance, you know, the the potential for loss of life, which is exactly what you said with, you know, the the economy. I mean, there are some just a serious ramifications for dealing with a, a floundering economy. Like I said, you know, um, there was this study done in 2015, one out of every five suicides, you know, is is directly attributable to unemployment and, and, a, and a weak economy. You've got, you know, increases in, in certain types of crime in some areas. Um, you've got, you know, mom and pop shops going out of business, even larger businesses that are shuttering, um, you know, people are basically losing their livelihoods. And I understand that that argument entirely. There's a part of me that wants to say, you know, yeah, we have to start thinking about an exit strategy for this. I know um, in, in some states, like my governor here, DeSantis in Florida, has, you know, formed a task force. I know um, a lot of other governors have done the same. And, you know, there's this big push in the business community. And also just, you know, you know, when you I guess, boil it down. Families are really suffering. Their kids aren't in school. Parents aren't able to work. There's so many people furloughed right now. I mean, I get it. I get it. There's this overwhelming cry to reopen the economy, but the two aren't mutually exclusive. You can take the disease serious, you know, the, this, this virus seriously and, you know, sort of brace yourself and do this in a very, you know, measured, educated way using the information we have um, and wait on this a little longer until the curve has truly been flattened and those federal guidelines 
guidelines have been met. Or, you know, you could look at this from an economic standpoint. We stand to lose so much more if we wait on this for too long. Like I said, there's no crystal ball. But I mean, I think Governor Kemp is totally jumping the gun with this one. And, you know, I I think, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. Um, if chaos breaks out again, I'm not going to say whether it will or it won't. I have no idea, but it's, it's, I mean, there's going to be hell to pay. I think the chances of this increasing infections and, you know, doing the opposite of flattening the curve in the state of Georgia, I think we're going to see that happening. I think that's a lot more likely than, than the opposite. Yeah. And it, you know, it's not just Governor Kemp and Georgia. You take a look at Tennessee, which is you know, opening yep. up as well. And their new reported cases for the last few days actually have been up. And so They've been to me, up, it's, yeah. it's not like we don't have an exit. We not, it's not that we don't have an exit strategy. There is one. The federal guidelines are good, solid guidelines, and state governors are just choosing, as as is their you know as is their right, to ignore those guidelines, and they are going to pay the consequences. Now, I would, I hope, my hope certainly is that against all you know calculations and predictions of of medical public health experts, I hope Governor Kemp is right, and we don't see a spike in cases in Georgia, and of course. You know, I should point out that in all of these cases, the governors aren't just saying everything's open and we're good and just go back to normal. There are they put in restrictions and guidelines and things like that. So sure. But it seems to me inevitable. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I think, you know, plenty of Tennesseans and Georgians are going to die, are going to get infected who wouldn't have otherwise. And so I think these are bad decisions. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'm looking now, um, you know, a lot of publications, I'm looking at a Business Insider article, but there are a lot of publications that, you know, listed the, there are 16 states that are currently in the process of mulling over this so-called exit strategy for reopening their economies. And, you know, every, every state from, I'm looking here, Texas, uh, Florida, of course, Georgia, Tennessee, Colorado, some of these states have these major metropolitan areas and are major airline hubs. And, and of course, Georgia is one of those states. You have major metro metropolitan areas in Atlanta, you have a major airport, you have, you know, an influx of people coming in and out of the state and certainly in and out of Atlanta. So I feel like there's like the stakes are so much higher in a state like Georgia or even in a state like Tennessee, as opposed to a state like Idaho or North Dakota or Montana, where the, you know, the the rate of infection is much lower. Um, You don't have any major metropolitan areas. I mean, obviously, you know, when people argue that there there needs to be this overarching federal mandate for a reopening, I think that that's incorrect. I, I think, you know, rightfully so, it should be state by state. Um, the way these states reopen should go according to those federal guidelines. And, and I'm happy to see that most governors are following those federal guidelines, even, even the governors of states like here in Florida, um, who are, you know, mulling how they're going to be doing this, you know, what the strategy will look like. They are returning again and again to those federal guidelines. And I also think that they're reasonable. I think most people in the medical community think that they're reasonable, at least people I've talked to and, uh, you know, in, in interviews I've read. But, you know, I, th- I think it's going to be interesting to watch what happens in, in Georgia. And obviously, you know, we're not going to know we're not going to know that, you know, how this has taken its toll for a couple of weeks, um, which is, you know, even more excruciating, I guess, for us. So, yeah, I, we've got our eye on Georgia and um, and also Tennessee and these other states. Um, and, yeah, I guess going into next week, we'll we'll probably know more. But, yeah, I'm I'm anxious to see what happens there and how this is going to affect Governor Kemp. Yeah, well, to me, and of course, the biggest part of it is our our testing capacity is still woefully inadequate. And the idea that, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Fauci can say, uh, you know, well, we we still have a long way to go. We're not there yet. And President Trump would say, no, I disagree. We're doing a great job with testing. Well, no, we're just simply not. And things are improving. You know, uh, the latest data is, you know, clearly tests are up. We're at a little over 200,000 a day. But even the low end estimates say that we need to be 500, 750,000 a day throughout the country. Now, of course, that varies by state, but that's, that's just an average. But we're not even close to there. So to me, uh, looking at the data and even, even the individual state data, the idea that any state is going to open up before mid to late May, I think it's just not only goes against these guidelines, but it's just, you know, essentially sacrificing sacrificing lives and and also there's going to be economic i think a greater economic impact negatively as well because when you get as i think is going to be inevitable unfortunately these spikes and then things have to close down again 
Well, th- then you just end up starting, you know, back at where you, you know, maybe where you were before or even worse. And so these decisions to me are just, just head scratchingly awful, I guess, in, in some of these states. Yeah. And I, I was actually, I, I meant to bring that up too. I'm glad you did. Um, about the fact that if, you know, indeed the, the curve has not been flattened in, in these states. And I'm not saying that this is what's going to be going on. I, like you, I hope for the best. And I hope that, you know, that we were wrong and that Governor Kemp is right with this. But, you know, I, I do scratch my head at this decision because if this, if this goes wrong and if infections begin to tick up and if we have, you know, another resurgence, who knows where that, in fact, where the infections could lead and how far it could transcend, um, you know, the the sort of go over the borders of Georgia into other states and how it could negatively affect if we have yet another lockdown, how that could negatively affect this yeah. already floundering economy and all the problems we're incurring and how, you know, the impacts it could have worldwide. Um, and, and you know, there there's no, there's no obviously no manual for something like this. Um, but, you know, I, I feel also like there's no excuse with all of the technology at our fingers tips and the technological infrastructure we have, um, there's, you know, there's really no excuse for, um, you know, I guess, letting this go on a little longer. Um, people are able to work from home. We are able to have our groceries delivered. I mean, even though the the economy is floundering and you have these businesses that have had to close up and shutter, um, at least temporarily, I'm sure some of them will be permanent. Um, you know, there are ways to keep the economy moving um, behind the scenes. And, and I feel like this is just a really irresponsible decision. But like I said, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong about this. In a few weeks, yeah. we'll know. Um, and, I, and I hope, you know, in my state, we've been hit particularly hard. I live in a, in a particularly hard hit area of Florida here in Southeast Florida. And, you know, I'm sort of looking to Governor DeSantis and saying, I hope you follow those federal guidelines. I think you will. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can't imagine reopening this state, you know, the, the, the way things are going in this state and in my county, um, I can't imagine reopening yeah. until mid-May, if not later. Um, I mean, it stinks and it's awful. Um, and I get the economic concerns, but it just, it feels so irresponsible to do otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, what really amazes me, uh, not really amazes me, but what really concerns me is that there are a lot of people who who seem to look at this in terms of uh, closed and open, and that at some point this summer, things are just going to be open, and we're going to be able to have, you know, baseball games with full stadium or full (laughs) parks and football games with full stadiums. And the simple fact of the matter is, from every epidemiologist that I've heard from is that essentially until we get to that herd immunity stage, which is what roughly around 60% or more people having some sort of immunity, yeah. that this is going to be an ongoing threat where it's not going to be anything resembling business as usual. And just to give a sense, New York state's obviously the hardest hit state and preliminary mm-hmm. data there shows around 13.9% have at some point been infected with coronavirus. That's a long way from 60%. And not only that, but the only way to know how far along on this curve we are is to have enough testing capability to do random sampling of the population. And we're nowhere close to that. So anyone who thinks that somehow we're going to flip a switch in May, June, July, August, or anything like that, and things are going to be normal, you know, not going to happen. And not only that, but it, it seems like there's a really good chance that this coming fall, between, you know, more opening up and the second wave of the, the coronavirus and not only that, but the flu season that we could be hit with something that's even harder. And, you know, people need to kind of at least mentally prepare for that. And I get yeah, I mean, sorry, oh, go ahead. I have to say, I get why politically President Trump, you know, has been ignoring questions about that, because the prospect of things being really bad in fall, obviously, when there's an election coming up, that's not you know, something that that's not something that he that you know redounds favorably to him. But it seems to me that there's a very good chance that that is going to be the reality. And we're not going to get a sense that, well, you know, by August, everything's going to be fine. And we're going to have this, you know, super sharp uptick in the economy and we'll be good because I don't think so. 
Yeah, I I was going to say I have I have hope, um, especially you know as as things begin to reopen in in stages. Hopefully, is is I think probably the most responsible way of reopening the economy. But you know, for example, um, if you open um, courthouses, if you or if you reopen courthouses, if you re- slowly reopen non essential businesses, um, you know maybe not businesses that that deal with close physical you know person to person contact, but you know if you if you really know this out and you come up with a strategy and, you know, you have public health officials who are instrumental in crafting that strategy state by state. Um, you know, I think that that the outcome will be better. But like you said, this is not a one off. You know, this, this is this situation could easily play out again every year for all we know. Um, and, you know, we could also experience a resurgence. This this could go on indefinitely. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think to sort of ignore the possibility that this could come back in the fall is really short sighted. Let me ask you this. You know, there, there are yeah. some voices not I mean, these aren't mainstream voices, but there are some sort of I guess you could say fringe voices on the right. You hear a story about you know, the occasional like Republican state senator or what have you. But yeah. people saying that, well, what we really need to do is to essentially just allow everyone who is, you know, under 60 and doesn't have an underlying condition back out, released all these restrictions. And yes, there will be some some deaths, but most people won't die. Most people won't be seriously ill. And then we'll get to a point of herd immunity maybe by the end of the year. And sure, it's going to be a, a horrible situation, but then it'll be done and over with. And, and that will be much better, kind of like ripping the Band-Aid off as opposed to just a slow drip, drip, drip until we actually have a vaccine and, and get it out there. And that's, you know, like 18 months, maybe. What do you, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely heard about some sort of more localized and, and state level politicians, um, you know, talking about possibly building up herd immunity this way. And like you said, ripping off the bandaid, I, oh, I, as somebody who's not an epidemiologist and somebody who's not involved in the medical community, I, I really, I have my, I, I will say that I have my concerns, um, because I think that, you know, I, I look at the economy, I look at the economy floundering and I, and I, and I would say that, you know, as somebody who is a fiscal conservative and as a conservative, I look at the economy and I say, this is, you know, this is tragic what's going on with the economy. And I think this will lead to loss of livelihood, possibly loss of life. I mean, I, I think it's, it's just as, as tragic. Um, but then I look at the other side and, and I say, um, the idea that, you know, we can just, um, I guess pick and choose who is going to um, isolate or self-isolate um, and everybody who is, you know, I guess under the age of 60, I've heard 60, I've heard 65, I've heard, high, you know, anybody without pre-existing conditions, um, anybody like that, just stay home and the rest of us go to work. I mean, I get the sentiment. I do. Um, as somebody who, you know, is, is um, I guess, concerned about the economy, but as somebody who's not, uh, in the healthcare community, member of the healthcare community, and who's not an epidemiologist, I I have to wonder if there's ample science to support this because, you know, if you look at what's going on in Sweden right now, and and um, I was interested to see what was going on. This was, I mean, for better or worse, this was similar to the approach that they took. They were trying to build a herd immunity. There were, you know, obviously there were fewer infections to begin with, but they sort of ripped off the Band-Aid in a lot of ways. And, and um, you know, their lockdown was not nearly as stringent as, as other European countries, certainly not as stringent as, as you know, what we had here in the United States, state by state. Um, and they've had some, some um, issues with trying to flatten the curve, essentially, even though they had fewer infections to begin with. I guess I would have to, you know, ask the question, is there science to back something like that up? I mean, I guess in theory, it makes sense. Um, but without, you know, something in practice, I, I would hesitate doing that. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, an experiment is worth the loss of life that could potentially occur because of it. Yeah. I mean, because I, I, in theory, I think it, it absolutely will work. If we were a heartless yeah. society, we would just say, you know what, let's just go about our thing and the, and the weak will die and we'll move on. And there you go. And that's not who we are. And I, I, I'm very grateful that that's not who we are as a society. For the most part, there are there are those fringe kind of social Darwinist sort of thing. Let the weak fall by the wayside and <laughs> the strong will survive and all that kind of thing. But uh, thankfully, those people, at least for the most part, are not making these decisions. Well, they're all on Twitter. That's where they that's are. If you ever sure. if you ever want to find those people, that's really <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of them on Twitter. Absolutely. Oh, well. Yeah. 
So should we continue to something that's not COVID related? You know, maybe we could do one non-COVID related thing this week. That would be nice. I would appreciate that. Yeah. Why don't we do that? <laughs> yeah, we, we were able to find a few, a few of these stories, although they were difficult to find. They were buried in the news. Um, so the, so the story that we're going to talk about is actually um, a, a SCOTUS decision. Um, so again, uh, we have a Supreme Court case to discuss here. You may have heard of it. Um, in a 6-3 decision, the justices held, and this is uh, the County of Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund. I should probably say the name of the case. Um, the justices held that a permit is required for either a direct discharge of pollutants into federally regulated rivers and oceans or its functional equivalent. So let's break that down a little bit. This case has been going on for a long time. Um, and uh, sort of going back a step, the question surrounding this case was whether the County of Maui in Hawaii was required to get a Clean Water Act permit uh, for the injection of pollutants into groundwater if some of these pollutants could eventually reach the U.S. water. So this was kind of, you know, another head-scratcher case. Um, how is this going to turn out? The Hawaii Wildlife Fund claimed that when groundwater acted um, as a pathway for uh, of pollutants that were discharged by a point source, a permit should be required. And the county of Maui claimed that no Clean Water Act permit should be required because the act does not regulate groundwater and does not permit uh, require a permit for non-point source pollution. So the big question here is, did the county of Maui violate the Clean Water Act by injecting wastewater that eventually reached the Pacific Ocean? So to boil it down, the majority held that, yes, um, the violation occurred, and the three dissenting justices argued that the Supreme court made up this rule. There was no clear guidance and it invites arbitrary and inconsistent application. Um, and so that, you know, there were a lot of ramifications for this, but I know this was, this was actually a case that, that you wanted to talk about. So I wanted to get your opinion on it. And I, I was delving into it quite a bit last night. It's a really interesting case that goes back a year or more. So, you know, if you get a chance, definitely delve into this one, but I think there are some, some bigger questions in play. What did you think, Mike? Well, you know, I looked at the clean water act here and the clean water yeah. act, uh, uh, specifically uh, forbids any addition of any pollutant from a point source to navigable waters, which is basically like a creek, stream, anything like that, without mm -hmm. that EPA permit. And so what Maui was doing in this wastewater reclamation plant, they were actually taking the sewage, partially treating it, and every day pumping around 4 million gallons of this treated water into the ground. And, but, and then this water in the ground that was pumped there would travel around a half a mile or so to the Pacific. And so what the, the argument here basically was that, well, you know, this is essentially the same effect as just dumping it directly into the Pacific, which yeah. would be prohibited. And I think the majority is right here. Then they were saying, well, what was the intent of the, you know, of the clean of this provision of the Clean Water Act? Well, clearly that that companies or, you know, ent entities don't just dump stuff into waterways without a permit. And if that's the effect that it's having, whether it's, you know, dumping it directly in or, say, having a pipe that goes three inches or whatever, a foot from it, and, and it goes in from there, it's, it's the same basic idea. And so you need to ask, what was the intent of this? And if something is clearly contrary to the intent of the law, then it, you know, it, it clearly cannot stand. And that's what the majority found. That said, I feel like you know, the majority was right in limiting the Ninth Circuit's ruling because the Ninth Circuit it came, it mm -hmm. came to this from the Ninth Circuit. And they basically said that, well, if any sort of pollution that's, that gets, ends up in waterways is fairly traceable to the source, then a permit's needed. Well, what does that mean? That is overly broad, I think. So the standard that the court announced was that it needs to be the functional equivalent of direct release into the waterway. And that, to me, you know, is a totally reasonable standard. Now, the dissenter said that's too broad and too vague and all that. And yeah, it's not perfect, you know, and it would be better if Congress revisited the Clean Water Act and put in, you know, uh, instead of saying uh, forbid the addition of any pollutant from any point sources to navigable waters or the functional equivalent, that would be better. But there are some of these things that are really difficult to put into specific regulatory language. Like, for instance, I think we could all agree that if there was a pipe that let out a foot from the Pacific Ocean, that that would be essentially the same as just dumping it right in there, even though it wasn't directly in there. But what about 
a mile. Well, is a mile the same? Well, that's that's when it gets sort of difficult and these decisions have to be made. And, you know, the EPA makes these decisions. And I think as a general rule, we have to understand that we can't necessarily codify every single little thing. And there has to be some administrative discretion. We want it to be as little as possible. But in the end, the EPA is tasked with making these decisions. And I think there should be a presumption that these are reasonable decisions unless the uh, unless the party that is challenging them can make a reasonable case that they aren't. And in this case, I don't think that, you know, uh, the county of Maui made a reasonable case. So I agree with the court here. Yeah, I um I was looking I was particularly interested in the dissent for this case um because uh, you know I I sort of guessed when I was you know reading some of the facts of the case and how the majority um how the majority held um and of course there were a couple of more conservative justices including Kavanaugh I believe who um sided with the majority on this but you know I was I was I wanted to see the the dissent because I also had some questions although I agree with the decision um I also had some questions in terms of how far this would go um, and, of course, who would be liable in the future. And, uh, you know, they brought up the 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 uh, the, the um, opinion, the dissent opinion brought up, um, you know, the fact that there could be many, many landowners in the future, just private landowners who would be open to, you know, being potentially liable for discharges from these point sources. It's not very clearly defined um, to, quote unquote, navigable waters um, that really don't necessarily meet the criteria, uh, you know, I guess, described in the Clean Water Act. And so, you know, I have some concerns about that, as I often do uh, with these Supreme Court decisions. I understand the logic. I do think that the county of Maui violated the, the, the CWA. But I think, you know, as with any of a case like this, I think there are some concerns about ramifications in the future. Could this potentially open up private landowners to, to lawsuits, you know, involving things that really have nothing to do with the Clean Water Act? Um, and so, you know, I, I did I did agree with, you know, some of the limitations in scope, you know, when the Supreme Court went back and basically amended the decision of the Ninth Circuit and said, you know, we need to sort of narrow this and we need to define the language better here. Um, but of course, I, I always have, you know, I always take issue with Supreme Court decisions that seem broad and sweeping. This was a little broad and sweeping, but I mean, overall, I agree with the decision. I don't, you know, I think it makes perfect sense. I think clearly the county of Maui violated the CWA. Um, and I think this case is, is one of those cases we'll probably see reemerge in the future. Um, you know, Supreme Court cases tend to do. Um, but I recommend that everybody go go ahead and look at this case. I think it's interesting. The facts are interesting and how they came to this conclusion, especially the dissent opinion um, is very interesting. Yeah. And, and I would just say I would just uh, conclude by saying that this is a big win for the environment, I think. And there are going to be a lot of people, well, a lot of polluters who are doing things that are, well, the functional equivalent of what the county of Maui mm -hmm. is doing. And now they are they have been put on notice. And so I am I'm pleased with the decision uh, that, uh, that the court has reached here. Absolutely. Definitely. So do we want to continue with uh, recommendations? Do yeah, let's time? do that. <laughs> okay, so do you have, uh, I, I guess you have one big recommendation that you wanted to make for an activity to do while in quarantine? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we've been, we've been doing recommendations to end every show, at least been trying to, just something that's, you know, non-political fun or mostly non-political and fun and interesting and that sort of thing. And of course, my, my standing recommendation has, has been that uh, the, the book that I am writing, my, my, fictional private eye book. And I appreciate everyone who's been reading it and following along and offering suggestions. And I'll always, I'll keep on putting the link there in the show notes. But my different thing this week is something from the, uh, it's called the open psychometrics test. Uh, which character are you? And it's really kind of interesting. I, I'm sure most people are familiar with these, you know, BuzzFeed quizzes, you know, uh, which character from the office or whatever are you that guy? And they're just, they're, they're, they're fun, but they're, they're <laughs> junk basically. But this one is actually real science. It's a 28 questions. It's fairly involved and it's done by actual, you know, psychology researchers. And so they were basically trying to make a, I guess, a rigorous and decent version of this. And so what they did, I thought, was really kind of fascinating. They put together this psychological profile test, and then they asked a bunch of people to rate fictional characters on all of these traits. And so then when you take it, 
they match you up to the profile, the average profile of these characters. And so it's, it's a, it's a really kind of neat and, and fun sort of thing. And I took it, uh, and it was, I think it was pretty interesting. And so I looked at it and the top five, I uh, hear my, my top five characters, at least that I recognized well enough to have a sense that they say that I am most like in terms of my personality. My top one was, uh, Julian Bashir from the doctor from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is one of my <laughs> favorite shows. I love that show. And my second choice, I like this one too, was Sam Seaborn from The West Wing. And so I really, I'm a big Rob Lowe fan and I loved his character on that. So that works out really well from me. And, and then I took it a second time. This time, instead of choosing like what I thought my qualities were in reality, I did it based on what, you know, I wished my qualities were. <laughs> and my, my top three were uh, Jedzia Dax from uh, the Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was actually number three in the first time I took it. Then President Bartlett from the West Wing. I was very proud of that one. That made me very happy. And then again, Sam Seaburn from the West Wing. So I guess my conclusion is that I'm kind of most like, uh, you know, according to these, these things, Sam from the West Wing. And I'm totally okay with that, with a whole bunch of Dr. Bashir from Deep Space Nine. So that works for me. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I, so you actually sent this, this to me. I'd seen it circulating on Facebook, I think, or, or somewhere. Um, I took it as well. And the, the, I tend to, with these quizzes, just the, you know, the, the little personality, the shallow personality quizzes, but then also the bigger, like the, the Myers-Briggs and, and, you know, these big sort of personality inventory tests, I tend to always get the same results and, and, um, and that's changed over the years, but I tend to always sort of get the same. And so the, my results with this didn't surprise me at all. So my number one was actually Arthur from Inception, which was Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Um, and I, actually his character was my favorite character in the movie. So okay, um, that cool. didn't surprise me. And there were a few characters I, I didn't really know. Um, there was like Janet Frazier from Stargate SG-1. Um, but then the one that I got most excited about is I got Alfred Pennyworth from... Uh, who was played by Michael Caine in The Dark Knight, which made me really okay. happy because I love Alfred. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I guess it goes along with my ISTJ personality, sort of get down to business, do work behind the scenes, don't make a big show, doesn't like to be the center of attention. Um, and, of course, the other one that made me really excited is I also got Dr. Ellie uh, Sattler from Jurassic Park and Charlie Young from The West Wing. So I also got a West Wing Very character. Cool, which, Charlie, yeah. And I remember, I love that character. He was played by... Um, Dule Hill, I yep, think. Yep. And yep. yeah, he was fabulous. He was also one of my favorite characters. So I was happy to see that. And, and there were a few more on, you know, on the list that I didn't recognize. But yeah, that test was really fun. I recommend it. Yeah, I, I only got one Jurassic Park character, and that was uh, <laughs> Ian Malcolm. So I don't know how I felt oh, about that one. Oh, best. He, but, oh, he was you, the best. But I think that kind of fits in more with my sort of, I'm a, I can be sometimes a little bit of a show-off sort of person. It's sort of out there, <laughs> so that, that kind of works for me. But anyway, that was a lot of fun. And I, I will have the link there in the show notes. If I'm sure a lot of folks have heard about it already. But if you haven't, it's a, it's a fun way to spend 10 or 15 minutes. I kind of drove my wife crazy with this. Like, I, one time I was thinking, so would you say I'm like 80? 85% loyal yeah. or 90% or she, she's like, she was like, would you just, just leave me alone already with this? You know? But it was yeah. a lot of fun for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I, I also have a recommendation. Mine's really quick. Um, so I think this is a good one, whether you have kids or you don't have kids. I, I've enjoyed doing it as much as my kids. Um, those of you who um, are, you know, who like Khan Academy? Like I love Khan Academy. Um, you know, it it in a lot of ways Khan Academy got me through some of the math in grad school, some of the statistics work and and macroeconomics and some of the things I didn't quite understand going into it. It really got me through. And so my kids um, also love Khan Academy. And Khan Academy has put together. They've actually paired with Disney. Um, and I'm, I'm a bit of a Disney holic for those of you who don't know, <laughs> uh, just a bit of a Disney holic. And so Khan Academy has paired with Disney and they've created this really cool series for kids and adults called Imagineering in a Box. And it's basically a series of modules and activities where real life Imagineers, which is so exciting to both me, maybe more to me than the kids, but the kids were into it too, um, where they sort of walk you through planning your own theme park and your own attractions um, in the spirit of Disney and how you would do that and some of the strategy involved. And so, you know, my kids and I at night when we're bored and we don't really have anything to do and we don't really feel like watching TV anymore, we sit down, we go through the modules, we create 
these worlds in our heads and on paper. And um, yeah, it's really, it's, it's encouraged, it's sort of pushed my kids into, um, you know, gaining a better understanding of engineering and what goes on, you know, using their imagination and their creativity with it. You know, math doesn't have to be not creative and, and boring. It, it can be really interesting to use those skills. So I highly recommend it. And I think it's, it's, you know, just as applicable if you have kids, if you don't have kids, four kids, adults, whatever, anybody would enjoy this. And it's free. That's the best part. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sounds like a, a fun kind of family sort of thing to do. Excellent. All right. Well, with that, we are uh, uh, we are done for today. Well, we're sort of done because if you would like a second full-length episode every week, you can get that by becoming a supporter. And this week, I think Chris and I, we're going to be talking about another Supreme Court case, Ramos versus yep. Louisiana. And that was, well, it was about the debt, well, about unanimous jury verdicts, but it's really maybe even more about, in a way, Roe versus Wade. We'll talk about that. And yep. uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, Mitch McConnell's comments about states filing for bankruptcy and maybe more aid for states. And then finally, something I've been wanting to talk about for a while. I'm very excited about this. This is the extent of my geekiness, uh, saving or <laughs> privatizing the postal service. I'm very excited about that. So if you are a supporter, you'll You'll be hearing that. And if you're not and you want to be a supporter, go to patreon.com slash politics guys. Gives you all kinds of information about what you need to know and what you get at various levels and all that kind of stuff. Also, if you're at a, you know in a place where you can't afford to support the show, but you would like that content, we are more than happy to help you out. So just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you full access to that second weekly episode. And of course, if, you know, being a monthly supporter on Patreon is a bit too much of a commitment uh, and you'd still like to help us out, you can do that through PayPal and you'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com. We also would appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share your favorite episodes on social media or email. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, our general email is mail2politicsguys.com. We do hope you'll check out the great discussions we have each week on our Bipartisan Politics subreddit, and you'll find the URL in the show notes. We have a Facebook page as well, facebook.com slash politicsguys, and we are on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by me, Michael Baranowski, and Kristen Matheny. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.